So I do want to give a little bit of a shout out to uh, our early morning crew who are here getting things set up. Uh, they've, they've really done a wonderful job getting everything arranged, whether it was sound or the seats or the, you know, the table. So why don't we just give them a round of applause now. Yeah, so my name's Dan. If this is your first time here, I'm the pastor or I'm one of the pastoral staff uh, here at Cornerstone, uh, along with Pastor Nathan, our, our youth pastor. And, uh, it's, uh, and last year we did this church outdoors thing every second week because if we were outside, we had no, no gathering limitations. You remember when we used to have to gather, we used to have to limit and six feet, you know, and masks and all that stuff. Do you remember that? Hands up if you remember that. Okay, well, this was our reprieve and we enjoyed it so much that uh, we've decided to kind of do it approximately once a month during the summer. And if this is your first time here at Cornerstone, then um, we exist to know Jesus, to grow in Jesus. And what's the third one anyone know? Show him to others, right? No grow show. That's what we're about. And that's why we do church outdoors. It's a great way for us to meet together um, and to glorify him and to show him off. You know, maybe there are people running past who hear something going on and, uh, you know, and then they show up. So uh, that's why we do church outdoors. And if you are new to Cornerstone, then uh, how we're planning our teaching through the year is that we're working our way through this thing called the revised common lectionary okay it's, it looks like a bible it's not a bible but uh, we're working our way through this um and it's sort of like a massive network of bible readings that help us navigate through the bible in a systematic and a thematic way it also forces us to engage with some of the passages that we might otherwise pretend really don't exist, right? We, you know, right, we have to preach on them. And I remember that while I was in Wales, uh, last time we were at Church Outdoors, we had Pastor Kevin from Southgate, and he was kind of like, uh, you know, a bit maybe curmudgeonly about the fact that he had to preach on the Demon Pigs passage, but uh, that's because it was the next reading. And so what the Revised Common Lectionary is, is a, it's a super big Bible reading plan that links us actually with lots of churches around the world who are doing this. Thousands and thousands of other churches are doing this all at the same time. So we all know that we're reading the same part of the Bible at the same time. It's a very unifying uh, experience. And so every Sunday there are four readings. I just I just prayed a couple of them. Um, so, so there's a first reading, there's a psalm, there's a second reading, and there's a gospel reading. And, and so in the message, I tend to focus on one of those um, each week. And this time, uh, yes, we're in the summer, but in the church calendar time, this time is known as ordinary time, okay? Ordinary time, which is the time between the time where the Holy Spirit came and um, then in Advent. So that time... Uh, yeah, between Pentecost and Advent is known as ordinary time. And so for me, I love living here in Canada. I've lived in many parts of the world, but one thing I love about living here in Canada is that you get to see the seasons of the world. Uh, you get to see the seasons of the year kind of march on, right? You know when it's spring and you know when it's summer and you know when it's autumn and you know when it's winter. Well, for me, that's what the Revised Common Lectionary is. It helps us to mark the seasons of the church year. Um, and uh, so, so uh, 
And so this morning, we're actually starting a new series uh, in this, uh, which is under the larger umbrella of Ordinary Time. And this series is called Action Required. Everyone say, Action Required. Action required, and we've just finished a series called Intervention about how God intervenes or acts in our lives, and now we're looking at how faith in Jesus actually requires us to get off our, our comfortable rear ends and to act ourselves. And let me be clear, it's not our actions that save us, only the grace of Christ, um, but it's the actions that prove that our lives have changed through encountering Jesus, right? James himself says in James chapter 2, verse 26, he says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Okay? Action required. Or another way to say it is, you must walk the talk. So this morning's reading will be very familiar to many of us. It's known as the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it's found in Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. So if you have a Bible or your phone, you can look it up. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. Hands up if you know the story of the Good Samaritan, if you've heard it before, if you're familiar with it. Yeah, okay, a, a few of us, which is great. Um, but yeah, before we, we get into the story, what I want to, want to do actually is I want to back us up a few verses, okay? If you remember a few weeks ago, Luke has just told us about these 72 Samaritans who have been mobilized, you know, to go ahead of Jesus and to prepare the way for him, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And while they're on this amazing short-term mission trip, they, they see evil spirits submit to them in Jesus' name. And this introduces us to the upside-down um, world, maybe kingdom, which Jesus is creating, where it's the weird and it's the impure Samaritans who he calls to be his messengers, his angelos, his street team. It's not the good Jews. It's the Samaritans. And so these 72 Samaritans, they return from their mission trip. And then in verse 23 of Luke 10, what Jesus does is he gets all the disciples around him and he huddles with them. Now, these aren't the Angelos. This isn't the 72 strong street team. These are the disciples. These are his apprentices. And he, he says privately to them in Luke chapter 10, verse number 23, he says, blessed are you that see what, or blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Okay, so Jesus is in this huddle. He says, you are blessed by seeing what you've just seen. But then in the NIV, hands up if you're reading from the NIV. I like to read from the NIV, it's my, it's my, but the NIV kind of makes, makes a mistake here because the NIV makes it seem now that there's a break in the story, that what happens kind of next kind of happens sometime later, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month, who knows, but, but it has this kind of sometime later feel to it. But the Greek actually says in Luke 25, all it says is, and then, okay, so he's had this huddle, and then. Meaning that whatever happens next in the text follows straight on from this huddle from verse number 24. And this unbroken flow is important to understanding the story of the Good Samaritan. So we've got this 72 strong streeting these, 
these Angelos who, who've just come back from their mission trip, they've started to separate and to go back to their homes and their families. Jesus is middle huddle with his disciples, you know, the 12, and what he's saying to them is what you just saw is incredible. And then out of nowhere, this guy, he butts in on their huddle. And he says to them, hello, teacher, I'm a lawyer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke chapter 10, verse number 25 says this. And then an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He breaks on this, on this private conversation with a question completely out of left field. And then if you know our passage today, there's a bit of a to and fro. Uh, there's this kind of verbal sparring between Jesus and this lawyer. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And so this morning, actually, I don't really want to focus on the story of the Good Samaritan. Instead, what I want to try to help us do is to get inside the head, inside the bonds, inside the gray cells of this lawyer, inside the heart of this lawyer, to maybe have a dig around in his motivations to see what makes this lawyer tick. It's a bit like watching um, someone who likes to take apart watches, right? They have a watch or a radio and they take it apart, they have all the pieces, and then they take joy in putting it back together. I'm not one of those people, okay? My friend, uh, or, or there was this time when uh, Wendy and I had no money at all because we were both youth pastors and youth pastors don't got a lot of coin, right, Nathan? <laughs> and, uh, and our car was absolutely toast. And then our friend Shane, uh, he amazingly took apart the transmission of our car, laid it out, and he put it all... I don't know if he laid it out. Maybe he didn't. But he, he took it apart and he put it all back together again. Now, I'm, I can drive my car. I know how to drive my car. But Shane knows what makes it tick, right? He knows the, the um, interior workings of our car. And so Jesus is now inviting us to do a Shane and to look under the hood of this lawyer in Luke 10 to see what makes him tick. And so Luke actually tells us two things uh, about what makes this lawyer tick, right? Because, and when we're thinking about these two things, which I will tell you in a second, um, one of the basic principles of the Bible is that God cares a lot more what's going on in our hearts than he does with what's going on out there, how things look out here. What you're thinking and feeling in here is much more important to him than what's going on out there. So I might have the best looking car on the road, but if the transmission is shot, then it's useless. It's a lemon. So what's the first thing then that makes the lawyer tick? The first of these two things. Well, Luke tells us that this lawyer wants to test Jesus. This is his motivation. Luke 10, verse number 25 says this. On one occasion, or and then, uh, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This lawyer is testing Jesus. He's looking to see if Jesus will get a passing grade or not. And the question on the lawyer's exam paper for Jesus is this. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Okay, he's not sincerely interested. He just has a test paper and he wants to know if Jesus will get a passing grade or not. How do I inherit eternal life? And so then Jesus, as it were, he gets this test paper from this lawyer and in the blank space underneath that, Jesus then writes down his answer and Jesus' answer is another question. Okay, verse number 26. What is written in the law? He asks, how do you read it? And then Jesus kind of hands back this test paper to the lawyer. The lawyer then reads Jesus' answer, which is a question. And the lawyer then answers underneath in the space. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is an expert in the law, right? And so he knows his Bible. He knows his Hebrew scriptures very well. And his answer is actually a blend of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 and Leviticus 19 verse 8. So this lawyer, this expert in the law, knew his stuff. And then Jesus then says in verse number 28, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So the lawyer gets full marks on his test. Let's give the lawyer a round of applause. He did very well. He passed. I, I said, let's, let's get a round of applause for the lawyer. He did very well. I can't hear much clapping going on. He did very well. And this lawyer, you would think that he'd be very proud, very happy. Jesus gave him full marks. But then the lawyer thinks, hold on a sec. I thought I was supposed to be testing Jesus. And now Jesus is actually testing me. And it's funny how Jesus does this, right? We come to him with our big questions. And then often Jesus comes around and kind of almost sneaky like he turns it around on us. Jesus can be sneaky like that sometimes. So the first thing that makes the lawyer tick is that he wants to test Jesus. And then Luke tells us the second thing that makes the lawyer tick. Verse number 29 says this, that he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So the lawyer wants to test Jesus and he wants to justify himself. This is interesting because it makes me wonder in my average week, how much of my energy and brain power is taken up with testing Jesus and justifying myself? You know, the lawyer has just seen 72 people come back from an incredible missions trip where they've seen God do miracles, right? They've seen God at work. They know that God is powerful. And, and this lawyer, this expert in the law, has probably heard a lot of their stories. And then he sees Jesus huddling up with his... Um, with his apprentices. Now, he can't hear Jesus at this moment, but what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. And, and so what Jesus is saying is that they've just had the, the, these amazing front row seats to the miracles that God has been working. And the lawyer has had front row seats as well, because he's right there as well. But in the middle of this incredible moment, this smarty-pants cynical lawyer ignores the stories and the miracles and he chooses chooses instead you know to barge in on this precious moment with Jesus and his disciples and then he has the goal after shouldering his way in he has the goal to try to test Jesus and to justify himself now if I was Jesus and it's probably a good thing I'm not Jesus but if I was Jesus I'd have given him the good old Wallace heave ho out of there right He's being a bit of a cheeky blighter. 
but, G- but Jesus instead, with his grace, in his grace, tells him a story. And it's a story of this man who's traveling 29 kilometers from Jerusalem to, uh, to Jericho. Okay, nearly 30 kilometers. And in this nearly 30 kilometers, the drop in altitude is one kilometer. So one kilometer drop over 30 kilometers means that that road is very steep. And then this man, is he's attacked because this road is very famous for robbers and he's left for dead. Then there's a priest and a Levite who are both, you know, temple workers. They see him and they pass by on the other side, maybe because they don't want to be ritually unclean for their job. And then, and, and as Jesus tells the story, he's inviting the lawyer and he's inviting us to see ourselves in the example of the priest and the Levite. And then verse 33 comes along, but a, a Samaritan, remember that these are the unclean outcasts who were also the 72 missionaries. Um, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And then this man takes care of nursing this man back to health uh, over several weeks, at risk to himself, uh, and at cost to his time and his own bank account. And then Jesus wraps up this story in verse 36 of Luke 10. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law said, Uh, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, remember that the original question from the lawyer was this. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And now we see that Jesus' answer to the question, how do I inherit eternal life, is go and do likewise. You inherit eternal life by going and showing compassion. Let's uh, make it a bit more real for us, right? Jesus comes to us as the king of a kingdom. He has, he has the almighty power to transform 72 childlike people into demon-conquering short-term missionaries, right? He has the power to do this. And just like the lawyer, we find that we cannot avoid him. He's in our face. He forces us to really deal with him. He forces us to make, to come to a conclusion about him or to make a decision. When confronted with Jesus, we come to a fork in the road and, and we have to make a choice whether we choose him or we choose ourselves, whether we choose his kingdom or whether we choose our kingdom. And so the option before us this morning, every single one of us sat here is to either worship and trust and obey Christ and to humble ourselves like the 72 Samaritan missionaries or to test him and to justify ourselves like the expert in the law. And I feel that too often, for me anyways, when faced with the glory of Jesus the King, we sort of, we protect ourselves from his claim by, by first we test him. Who is this Jesus anyway? What right does he have over my life? And then we justify ourselves. I don't really need to obey him. He didn't really mean that when he said that. So what does it mean for us to test Jesus? Well, it's, well, this word, it's a very specific word. and It's only found in 
in a couple of places in the Bible. First, Luke, Luke, Luke 4 verse 12 says this. Jesus answered, it said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And who is Jesus saying this verse to? Anyone know who Jesus is saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test in Luke 4 verse 12? Who's he speaking to? Anyone know? Satan. It's the devil. He's speaking to the devil. And who, so, so the devil tests Jesus. Who else tests Jesus? 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 verse 9. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. So who are them and how did they test Christ? Well, Numbers chapter 21 verse 5 tells us that the people of God had Jesus with them in the form of a rock. Okay, if you can imagine a rock, a big rock that's moving around with you while they had Jesus in the form of a rock in the desert and he was giving them spiritual food and spiritual drink. In other words, he was in their midst, they saw his might and his power, they saw how he met their needs, they witnessed you know, the power of his supernatural work in their midst and yet still they chose to test him by saying to Jesus or to God or to Yahweh, uh, you're not enough, I also want my sexual immorality and my idolatry um, and my partying. So testing Jesus is never a good thing. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have questions. In fact, I encourage those. But if you're living in a way that's silencing the voice of the Holy Spirit and your conscience, then you are testing him. You're walking in the footsteps of the devil. And here's the thing, though, is that you cannot outsmart Jesus. He never fails the test. You can test him. He will pass every single time. Right, Psalm 18 says this, To the faithful you show yourself faithful, to the blameless you show yourself blameless, to the pure you show yourself pure, but to the devious you show yourself shrewd. So do you want to encounter faithful Jesus, blameless Jesus, and pure Jesus, or do you want to encounter shrewd Jesus? Because really, depending on your heart, is the Jesus, quote-unquote, is the Jesus that you will encounter. And so, instead of testing him, I invite you to trust him. Place your trust in him. Lean on him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. These are the words of Jesus. Verse number 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So we asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, in the message, it says this, looking for a loophole, he asked, and how would you define neighbor? Oh, smart rabbi. Okay, I added those last three words on myself. But this lawyer is trying to get out of his responsibility to love his neighbor, right? He's trying to force Jesus to narrow the meaning and the definition of neighbor so that this lawyer can then get out of doing whatever makes him feel uncomfortable. And knowing that this is true about the lawyer, that he's trying to get out of his responsibility, Jesus then tells a story that widens the definition and the concept of neighbor to mean anyone who is in need. And because the hero of the story is a Samaritan, Jesus is saying, hey, if the unclean Samaritans are able to do this, then surely you, as a, a good upstanding Jew, who's an expert in the law, surely you're able to do this as well, right? It's like Jesus is challenging him. There's this sarcastic tone to, to Jesus' voice here that is at odds with this idea of gentle Jesus that we often think about. Because remember, 
To those who are devious, Jesus shows himself shrewd. But this morning, as I said, we're not looking at this story. Instead, we're looking under the hood to see what it is that makes this lawyer tick. And the first truth is that we have a tendency to test Jesus. And the second truth is that we have a tendency which seems to have no end to justify ourselves. Hey, I go to church. I give a little bit. You know, when I have extra, I give it to the food bank. I'm nice. Or maybe we define our goodness like society does. I agree to leave you alone to do what you want to do as long as you agree to leave me alone so that I can do whatever I want in the privacy of my own home. This is what being a neighbor means today, right? Quietly living alongside each other with a sort of a peace that comes from mostly ignoring each other. Really, we've learned that love, in terms of our society, is generally leaving each other alone. Love is manifested as passing by on the other side. It's, it's looking not too closely. It's not asking too many questions. It's staying uninvolved. That's what love here in Canada means. But Jesus redefines neighbor as seeing someone and having compassion on them and then actually doing something about it. That's what the story of the compassionate Samaritan is all about. So what about you? Are you more like the lawyer who's testing Jesus and justifying yourself? Or are you like the Samaritan who saw and had compassion and chose the risky route of entering into his neighbor's brokenness? Let me close with a parable of my own. There was a pastor heading to family camp. It was a Sunday afternoon and the morning had been really busy at church. He led worship and led Holy Communion and he preached and then he, he chatted with a bunch of people and then he left his staff to lock up the church as he was heading off to a care home to be with a member of the church who was probably in her last maybe days, maybe hours. And then he was there for a couple of hours uh, ministering and simply being there. And then he headed home. It was now mid-afternoon and after packing up the van, he was finally off to family camp. He was excited. But on the way out of town, he realized that he'd left something at home. So he turned around and he went back home. And as he came up to the intersection in the little town where he lived, the lights turned red. So he stopped. And as he was stopped, he saw a man on the street, walking on the street in front of him with a massive backpack on his back and numerous small bags hanging, hanging off the big backpack. This man had a dog walking in front of him on a leash. It looked like everything this man owned was in the back in the bag on his back, he, he looked homeless. And in a, in a freak happenstance, another community leader arrived at exactly the same time at the intersection, straight opposite from, from this pastor. And this pastor saw this other community leader notice this homeless person. And the pastor in his air-conditioned van watched this man across the street and he tried to avoid eye contact with the community leader in their own car because he knew that if they saw him, then he would have to do something. And this pastor waited for the lights to turn green, which felt like it took an eternity. 
but as he was waiting, many thoughts went through his mind. I should stop and see if this man needs anything. But wait, that other community leaders could also do something. I don't want to be late, you know, to get to family camp. And if I'm honest, our church has helped lots of homeless people in the past. We don't need to help this one. In fact, I don't even know if, if I'm honest that he is homeless. I'm just assuming, and it's very offensive to make assumptions about people like this. He seems to be healthy. He has a good stride to him. In fact, most likely he wants to be outside, walking wherever he's walking. He looks happy. But I, should, but I still should do something. But I don't want to offer him a place at the church, only to leave and my wife to be the only one around. That's not safe. But at least I could maybe ask, offer him a glass of water and a break in our air-conditioned church building. But if I do that, what happens if he asks me for a ride into town? Surely Jesus doesn't want to overextend myself and my daughters in the van anyways. And I've just led worship and I've just led Holy Communion and I've preached and I went to the deathbed of a sister in Christ. I've done enough today. Okay, here's the deal. If he does stop at the church, my wife can call me and I can turn around and I can come back. So to use the language of Luke chapter 10, this pastor saw this man and he passed by on the other side. And within 30 minutes, he forgot all about the homeless man as he drove to family camp. Quite the parable, eh? Sounds very similar to the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 10. Only this wasn't a parable. This actually happened, and not even a very long time ago. It happened last Sunday to a friend of mine who was going to the same family camp that I was. Actually, it wasn't a friend of mine. This pastor who saw this person in need, and who then went on to test Jesus and to justify himself by passing on the other side of the road was me. This is my confession. Luke chapter 10, verse number 25 says this, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says this, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise.